learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by Thrive DX. Hi, and welcome back to TFPE. I'm your host, Sean Dagoni Clark. And one of our earliest episodes was on VR and AR for immersive learning and, and how they can build empathy in the learner. And if you haven't heard that episode, there will be a link in the episode notes. Today's guest is going to help us further explore immersive learning. So Wes Delavola has a long history in media production, and I'll let him give the details. But as a teaser, he has a bunch of awards for his work in VR and 360 video, and he's created some groundbreaking VR experiences and is now partnering with Meta on their immersive learning initiative. So when Wes talks about the metaverse, we listen. So Wes, welcome to the future of professional education. Well, great to be here. Thank you for having me and really looking forward to sharing some of the insights uh, and experiences I've had along the way with uh, the metaverse and uh, immersive learning before there was the term the metaverse. So I'm excited to kind of share that with everyone. Yeah. And so speaking of that term, let's just dive right in. So uh, this term, the metaverse is getting thrown around a lot right now. And at this point, I think probably a lot of our listeners have heard of it. But in this podcast, we don't assume anything. So what is the metaverse <laughs> and why should educators care about it? So the metaverse to I'm, I'm channeling a little bit of uh, Eddie and Patsy from AbFab. I hope this reference transfers. And so she's a <laughs> she's a PR executive, a little out of the box, a little out of her mind in, in London. And, you know, the metaverse, much like PR, she describes as everything, anything and nothing at all at the same time. And I feel that kind of describes the metaverse in that it also describes the Internet. And I think that's the best correlation to start from for those trying to wrap their head around what the metaverse is. So in particular, when it comes to meta in the metaverse, think of it as meta is to the metaverse as AOL was to the internet in those early days when we still had dial-up. It was a way to access, a way to connect, a, a walled garden and access area that you could connect to this new thing, the World Wide Web. And think of meta in the metaverse in that way, in that this is the next way things will be connected. We will be connected. It's as much as the hardware you access the metaverse with to the software you connect to it on, and even the back end that pipes it all together and what we all create. So the metaverse is really going to be that connection between all of us, the technology, the software, and how it all links together and creates something that honestly, if done right and with good intention, I think has the ability to connect a lot of us in a way we could never imagine uh, and really provide the opportunity to broaden access to so much around us in a way that could really make a big difference. Again, that's if it goes the way that I would like to see it go, you know, <laughs> but like, like any new technology, um, it's subject to change. Sure. And I love looking at it the, the way you just described as a, a device for connection, which I, I think is, uh, you, you gave the analogy of it's, it's kind of like, if you think about the internet, it's, that's all about connection as well. This sort of takes it to the next level. So that's a, that's a helpful way to think about it. 
So, okay, before we go further into that, let's take a step back and let's talk about your background. So you've produced for a number of types of media, and I'd love it if you would just walk us through your journey and share what set you on the path to building these immersive storytelling experiences. Um, so what built what set me on the path, um, as we were just talking about before we started recording, uh, my mom would tell you that I've always been someone who's been a storyteller. Uh, my, my nickname was little professor because I like to talk at people about things, anything, everything I found exciting. I would talk at you at it and particularly it's talk at you. I was not talking with you or we were not having a conversation. I was just telling you something cool I found and discovered. So that's where my storytelling started. Um, but it really took over in high school. I was fortunate. I had a really incredible teacher. Her name was Christy Marks at my high school. We had a full service TV studio and I was able to, uh, take that class as an elective and she discovered pretty quickly that it was something I loved. So she had the camera and a script in my face and then I started telling stories. Uh, it was there. I cut my first videos, did editing. So by 17, I had helped uh, create a video for the Washington Post explaining the history of the county I grew up in in the DC area. And then uh, went to college for visual media studies at American University in their School of Communication. And uh, fortunate enough to get an internship at National Geographic when I was in college and continued to uh, learn and grow there. Uh, fortunate to work with and learn from some of the best storytellers on the planet for combined more than 15 years. Of course, there were moments in between there where I broke out and decided I wanted to be a music journalist and a DJ and tour producer, which was a lot of fun. Again, it was storytelling in a different way altogether, but a few years away from doing something that had the purpose of sharing nonfiction and like just sharing knowledge, I really missed it. And uh, fortunately, I was able to jump back into that world with National Geographic Learning, which is a textbook publisher. So there I helped create new media, manage talent, and find the best people to get kids and learners of all ages excited about learning, um, and continued to do that, producing live events and experiences for National Geographic up until COVID hit. And uh, unfortunately, when you have a global pandemic that requires isolation, the need for a director of live events and experiences may take a back seat. So in that time, I decided to use all those crazy skills I just kind of ran through pretty quickly and uh, start something where I get to tell the stories I love to tell on any of the platforms I've ever worked on. So the quick rundown starts with broadcast TV all the way up to right now, working with Immersive from AR, VR, XR, and all the mixed realities you could imagine. So it's been a fun ride, learning new technology as I adapt. Uh, I started my career using tapes so actual like proper film tapes. <laughs> I even edited actual film itself in camera at one point. So now we're doing everything on our phones and these small devices. Drones are a thing of fantasy for some of my career points. <laughs> I used to hire helicopters yeah. <laughs> or use hot air balloons to get low enough and not disturb animals. Drones are incredible to think you can just do so much with them now. So it's a bit of a tangent, but it kind of shows the past 20 years in a nutshell of how the world has changed, the career I've had has changed, and where I thought I'd end up is nothing like I thought it would be when I was 17, walking into that TV classroom. I mean, first of all, it's just, it's amazing to have that experience where you have a teacher who really changes your life like that. 
um that's that's sort of the the holy grail for educators is to to be able to give that experience to a student so that's amazing that you had that so early and i mean how fortunate that you did and then the way that all of this comes together into what you're doing now the storytelling but but really thinking about these multiple modalities that you've worked with as you do this storytelling that must be really helpful it has been yeah it's been super helpful to have all that background i learned pretty quickly that a good story is a good story no matter what platform you're telling it on you just have to right. make it fit the platform and potentially the audience that's there um, which is actually something I teach students now. Uh, another place I never thought I'd be is being an adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University teaching climate storytelling and climate action. Um, and a lot of it is helping the students understand, okay, you have an important story. How do you communicate it to people in different ways so that you can connect with as many people as possible? And that's what I teach them. So it's all about being platform agnostic. And, and that's a term I like to use a lot when people ask what I do. I'm a platform agnostic storyteller. So in that, I love to tell stories no matter the platform. There are some, some ones I prefer, I won't lie, <laughs> and I'm better at, but it's always good to think of telling a story or getting a message across or a teaching point or anything you really want to convey in as many ways as possible because, unfortunately, or fortunately, I think more unfortunately, communication is so fractured right now. So if you have a really important story, being able to tell it on multiple platforms means there's more of a chance that you'll connect with someone and that story will make an impact. Whereas before, you know, early in my career or even before then, you kind of had clearly defined places you could tell stories that were really heavily gatekept and were broader reaching. You know, there's always the stories, you know, you hear of there were only three channels back before cable and then cable and everything like that. I mean, I experienced those days, but I imagine anyone listening now who might be a student, <laughs> those may feel like days long gone. Um, right. But the ability to tell a story that connects no matter the platform in, a, in, a, in an era when there are countless platforms and new ones popping up every day. Um, I had the adventure this weekend of sharing knowledge about the platform Be Real. This is not an ad for them, but it's a unique platform that forces... Uh, interesting discussions among my uh, significant other and his friends this weekend. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and actually I want to use part of what you said as a segue because um, you talked about platforms and being platform agnostic. So I've got a pretty lengthy background in ed tech and I've become kind of jaded on it because so much of ed tech focuses on that new shiny thing. And we've seen this long history of the promises of educational technology and how they've failed. So the Skinner box was one of the first technologies that was gonna revolutionize the classroom. And we haven't seen that in use in quite a while. And Actually, then radio the and, <laughs> oh, it was, so B.F. Skinner was a behaviorist and that was some of the earliest forays into um, sort of theory-based education. And so it was a, it wasn't the same as classical conditioning exactly, but it was classical conditioning in the form of education and didn't work out so well. And so then the radio was going to revolutionize the classroom and then film was going to revolutionize the classroom and TV was going to revolutionize the classroom and then computers and interactive whiteboards and all of these things we found the the promise just doesn't live up to the reality. And so Here's the the question for you. Why is the promise of VR, or if you want to expand it, XR, 
um, different from all of the other ed tech promises that have come before? And why won't it just be the next educational technology that under delivers? Well, the, I will be very honest and upfront. This might be, you know, showing a hand. It might still very well be just as useless as all those past things you talked about. But that's the point where we're at right now is that it's that decision point. It's that inflection moment where do we actually, you know, use it for something and it becomes a valuable tool for teaching or does it stay as a gimmick? And I ideally see the potential for it becoming a very vital tool. Mm -hmm. The limitation to that is going to be the ability for educators to create or have access to actually more importantly work in partnership in tandem with those creating platforms the tech and making sure it actually is a tool that is useful for them some of the most valuable feedback i've gotten recently is teachers talking to them uh, and that's what's going to make the point so looking back to that long list you you mentioned yes of course there was a time when TV film you know, film strips were you know going to revolutionize everything. Um, <laughs> bring the world to you in your classroom, right. and it did to a point, but it again didn't change the way we taught. It just added another tool to the toolkit, which sometimes was used effectively, oftentimes not. <laughs> um, I would say the one out of the list that you ran through the internet and computers that did massively change the way we learn and the way we teach and the way we engage. That one stuck because it changed everything mm -hmm. else. And it also became a huge value add. Um, where a film strip or a video does add context and you can get direct primary feedback for learning straight from the source that adds to it. Um, but you could also get that from writing. You could also get that from a, you know any other format. But I think with the internet and computers, it was a whole new platform and way of creating and tools and interaction. And I see the metaverse being much closer to that, you know, given mm. that it is, you know, as I use air quotes, you can't see this as a podcast, you know, internet 3.0, um, it has all that potential, but the internet in its early days too, could have easily become a gimmick if there weren't people creating or seeing the value there and the possibility. And that's where we're at now with, with immersive and the metaverse and XR there's potential. People see it and people are trying to work towards it. Will that ultimately prevail? Who knows? But right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a futurist insofar as that I have ideas and thoughts, but I'm also not, um, my ego is not large enough to think I know all the answers. Um, okay. So yeah. no, that's fair. I would not count me anywhere near like Elon Musk or anyone on those levels of, I think I know what the world's going to be like. I'm not foolish enough. Probably better that way anyway. <laughs> and Agreed. I, I, <laughs> I think it comes back to what we started with was the, the notion of connection, right? Because things like radio or the film strip or, you know, even the interactive whiteboards, they're all about broadcasting information. And the difference with the internet was that it allowed the student to really get involved with it and not just listen. And, and it seems like that's the same reason that there's the potential with, uh, with XR. I would agree. It does allow that connection and communication, which is very different than a one-way dissemination of knowledge um, right. where there isn't that chance to have feedback, to have interaction, and actually feel connected to the subjects, the, the things you're learning, the places you're going or learning about. Uh, that is that connection point, and that's, that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I want to, we, we're going to talk about some of the projects that you've built, but there's one in particular that we talked about just as we were getting to know each other, the uh, the dive experience that you built and the A-B test that you did and what you saw as a result. It feels like that's a perfect example of the promise of VR. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Um, it's it's interesting you met you that that wording the promise. Um, when I was at National Geographic, I had the incredible um, pleasure to be the director of live events and experiences for the National Geographic Society. So a little background on that. Um, a lot of people don't realize that before there was a magazine, there were live talks. So a month after National Geographic's forming in 1888, they had their first talk. And it was one of their founders talking about, I think it was the physiography of the American West, something equally flowery or like that for the time period in the late, you know, early Gilded Age, late 1800s. Um, <laughs> and while I was there, this is, the stu this is the stage that has been home to every explorer for more than 40 years, from Jacques Cousteau to Jane Goodall to everyone in between. And I got to run it for four years. I was a supremely lucky person. Um, and in that time, I also got to create with an amazing team, <laughs> could not have done it myself, um, the world's largest permanent virtual reality theater. So that was 450 Oculus Go's, remote activated, synchronized, playing together with a speaker on stage, traditional media playing both on the screen and over the theater sound system for a truly unique live immersive experience um, that created a connection like anything I've ever, unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, and that opened in October 2018. And in early spring 2019, we were working, I was working with one of National Geographic Explorers, one of the, sorry, <clears throat> in early 2019, I was working with one of the National Geographic Explorers, Dr. Erica Woolsey, um, her, who her nonprofit works on expanding ocean literacy and uses scalable technology often to do that. They have a program called Immerse that is, uh, helps you go diving with manta rays. And so we created a unique version for that theater where there was a you know, presentation where Erica would lead you up to a dive. You would go diving with her for five minutes or so underwater in Palau and learn about manta rays and the coral reefs that support them. Um, and we had the amazing opportunity as part of a grant to bring students in for that. So we had 200, uh, sorry, we had 400 total uh, middle school students come in and to do an A-B testing with them over two different versions of that program. So it was the same talk, same presentation, each lasting 30 minutes, each having two clips that you would go swimming with manta rays. The only difference was the A group, um, they watched the video flat on the screen. And then the B group got the same exact story, same exact content, but the immersive videos, instead of playing flat on the screen, played in headsets that were remote activated and synchronized. So they got to go diving with Erica underwater in the theater. And, you know, the, the amazing thing was, and this is solely anecdotal because it's one group. <laughs> I want to stress that too. Like the, this is a good example of the potential and seeing it live happen in front of your face, um, but it has not been replicated. It's not been done on a large scale. It was just this one group, this one time. Um, but those caveats, I think, don't dilute the power of what I'm about to talk about next, which is that that first group that saw the videos only and had no immersive, they asked questions of Erica, you know, where'd you go to school? Why did you want to become a marine biologist? You know, what was it like living in Australia? Those type of questions that focused really on her as a presenter in her career, which are great questions to have. The group that got to see the VR, they asked very different questions. For them, it was, where does that turtle live? What do corals eat? What do, what do baby manta rays look like? Those are the type of questions that we got from the second group. And that was the group that got to go swimming with them in VR and really experience those moments 
completely immersed. That alone is an impressive mind shift and focus. And the students asked questions as if they were the scientists there with Erica on that field site in that moment. So that you see right then and there the connection point. And that, that's one great example. We also had some other programming while I was at National Geographic where we had people who had actually been to the places we took them in virtual, virtual reality leave and tell us, you know, this was the first time I felt like I was there again. I miss that place. I want to go back or those type of things. So seeing that live and in action on a scale of 450 people at a time is really powerful. Um, and it, yeah, it's still... One of those things I have to pinch myself that I, that's part of my career that I got to do. Um, yeah, it was it was an incredible moment in time to, you know, two years I had support from that organization. I had two bosses who got out of my way, got everyone else out of my way <laughs> and let me have this crazy idea and run with it and create something that is truly unique, powerful, and so exciting. It was wonderful to make those stories happen. Um, and I can't thank the teams that were behind it from our XR staff that, you know, picked up 450 headsets after shows and made sure they were recharged, plugged in, put away, <laughs> cleaned, <laughs> small thing. all of those things that went into it. And every storyteller who worked closely with us to create something that was never done before. It was an amazing opportunity and definitely it, it um, strengthened my drive to make something with immersive and see its potential. Nice. Yeah. And the, what you said about the difference in the questions, it makes me think about the experience that I had back when I was doing my master's, which was like 2009 at Teachers College. I did two virtual learning courses. And this was when people were sort of trying to figure out what do we do with this virtual learning thing? And, you know, Second Life was the, the big technology, the big shiny thing right then. And the, the experience that I had was the, it, it was the sort of standard, you know, message board. You have to post once a week and then you respond to a couple posts and that's like your interaction with the class. And it, it was a really interesting experience because it changed the nature of the, the conversation from what it would have been in a standard class where you're trying to come up with something on the spot to discuss versus where you have time to really formulate the question. And I found that the learning that I did was at a much deeper level in some ways, but the connection that I had to the students and to the class itself was the worst that I've ever had. And so it, this makes me think of it, but it's in sort of the opposite way that the VR here connected the students so well that the questions that they were asking were so much more valuable. And uh, yeah, that clearly that's just a real promise of, of, of VR and XR for education. So let's, let's flip here and then and talk about the drawbacks. What are the drawbacks of this for education? I mean, the drawbacks are, you know, what organizations have the money to fund a theater that's got 450 VR headsets, the support network, the programming, the con like all of it, the, st the staff, the con like everything alone to make that happen. And there, there aren't many. Um, and there aren't many that are going to do it in a way that is focused on learning, focused on factual information sharing. Uh, and I think that's a part of it too. So that, that is just one of the limits. The limits of it is it's an expensive medium. And it's also too just accessibility. 
which I know I want to revisit later. We talk about the fact that it can, at the same time, make things more accessible. It also makes things less accessible. And mm -hmm. I think it's one of the biggest concerns with XR and AR right now is that it's expensive to make. Uh, if you want to go into a fully immersive space, VR, you need a device to do that to get the best impact out of it. Now, of course, you can explore immersive and that connection point with devices you may already have on hand. But we're in a country, unfortunately, in the United States where basic connectivity is sometimes a luxury. So how do you bridge that gap? And maybe VR and XR aren't the way to do that. Um, heaven forbid, I, I say this as someone who loves XR and AR, it is not a solution to every problem. It's not meant to be. And I think what often happens with new technologies we touched on earlier, people assume it will fix everything. It's not going to. It will add and make things better if used properly and correctly and can be activated that way, but it could also be a bigger hindrance. So I'm sure there's a lot of schools that are well-funded, have connection points to organizations that will help them utilize the technology. They're going to continue to grow and utilize the technology, but that's not going to do anything but expand a uh, access gap. So that's one of the yeah. biggest limitations, I think. I also think that it's learning a whole new operating system. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the one of the biggest barriers to entry, I think, with new technology, especially like think about early days of computer labs and learning in those spaces was em empowering educators to feel comfortable enough to not only use it, but teach with it, create teaching materials with it, um, be able to utilize it to its fullest extent. And that's a major limitation. Um, not just a limitation for XR or AR, but it's a limitation in general for new technology in classrooms, especially in a formal setting and even informal setting, you know, making sure that there are interpreters at museums or national parks or other places where people go to engage and learn, you know, outside of the classroom, that there's staff there who understand what this, what this can do. And I think that's the biggest limitation and beyond all of it along, you know, pair that with cost. So part of the reason that, you know, I, the partnership with Meta has been so um, potentially wonderful in its early first year. We're approaching almost the first year um, anniversary. Is that one of our baseline goals and first targets was to create um, a guide to help people navigate this new metaverse, mm -hmm. this new technology. Um, and it was amazing to do that um, with an incredibly collaborative genius team um, to create a practitioner's guide uh, for learning in the metaverse to hopefully help bridge some of those limitations. But to go back to it, the, some of the biggest limitations are cost of the content and the media, expertise in making it, um, and then making it accessible. Um, you know, Meta has an amazing platform, potentially amazing platform called Spark AR that is the back end for a lot of their AR filters and Instagram. It's incredible that it can reach millions of people with potentially interesting, engaging, you know, uh, uh, media, interactive technology, uh, interactive storytelling, interactive learning things, but it, you're limited to a very small amount of data it can share for the, as the trade-off for that reach. But, you know, if you want to do things more detailed and dig into it, you, you, you can't use that platform for that type of sharing. So what does that mean for learning? You're limited to small amount of information over a broad audience but it's not in-depth learning can be challenging. That all may change, but the biggest limitations right now are cost, access to the hardware to access the metaverse, um, familiarity with new technology, 
and how to tell stories in a different medium. Um, mm -hmm. It's all new for all of us. We're all learning. And being a good storyteller often means like you have to adapt to your platform. And none of us quite know. A few of us are getting it closer. Um, the best way to do all that. It's not a simple answer, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and, and, and I think what you were talking about with access, that's maybe one of the biggest uh, limitations, um, if not the biggest in my mind. Because when, so years ago, I was uh, heading the academic technology department at, uh, at a school, at a K-12 school, and it was a well-funded private school. And so I was able to really invest in some VR and AR technologies. And so we had several of the big headsets and then we got a bunch of the uh you know the little i forget what they were called but the thing you'd stick your phone inside and um, oh yeah from google samsung gear vr the, or, the, or, the, or the cardboards got the it. cardboard that was it yep yeah and so we got those and then some other sort of higher level models we i think we may have tried the samsung but we we had the opportunity to experiment with it and um it, it, now this was very limited you want to talk about anecdotal this was you know just a few kids so you know no no big results but what we did find was that the kids felt a, a real connection in a, in a different way through the headset but even with the google cardboard we, we talked about this in class that you know you still have to have a cell phone <laughs> not yeah. everybody has a cell phone and you can't assume that they will and so we were trying to there was there was one point when we were trying to create a project where the the kids wanted to build this they actually built it it was pretty cool this um sort of collaborative 360 video platform and so they built the the thing in unity and then they had like the interface with it to upload your video and it was going to geolocate it and the idea was that you could sort of hop between 360 videos and learn what other people are seeing even to do that though you need a 360 camera and so it you know it just it, the limitations there were huge um because so many people just don't have that and so at best you might be able to watch this on you know a, a screen in, instead of in a headset but that really changes the dynamic of it and it's much less powerful it absolutely does and two things i think of immediately um are that you know looking back to tv looking back to any other form of media production there was that time as well like television you know big heavy cameras big thing mm -hmm. like I was lucky enough to go to a public school in Maryland that had a full service TV studio with three cameras and a full lighting rig and audio and sound and mixer in the back studio where you could run a live show every day for your morning announcements that was TV based. Mm -hmm. That is not normal. <laughs> um, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was not yeah. normal. Um, and I knew that and I was lucky and I, I appreciate that. But I know now that it's becoming more and more prevalent to have things that allow democratic, you know, democratic access to these type of media platforms and creating them. Um, you know, phones have done a lot for that. I know they're not everywhere, but just thinking about in the past 20, 30 years, or even longer, because really film strips and early video, you know, it's, it goes back even further. It's taken time to catch up. So what's happened in that middle time, you know, in that time frame is both optimistic for what could happen with AR and VR and that, you know, prices will come down. Things will get more accessible, mm -hmm. but the downside of that is it'll, what's it going to take decades that doesn't help anyone right now or in the immediate future for learning. So that's the limitation. Um, 
And then it's interesting that you bring up the cardboard and the different connection points you have. And oftentimes when I talk about, you know, immersive and its ability to connect and how it impacts you, I always think of it as a scale from one to 10. So one is like you're, you're watching a flat screen and 10 is you're fully immersed in a headset, you know, with headphones on and you're really, really just focused in on that content and that experience. And in the middle somewhere is the ability to watch it on your mobile device where you can, um, you know, move your phone around. So that's probably like a three or a four. You feel a little more immersed in it. You're, you're in that space. And it does have a more connection because you are surprised and engaged and remember as you turn around and see things. Cardboard's probably a six or a seven in that you're getting closer to being fully immersed, but you still have some perception of the outside world because that cardboard doesn't fully fit on your face or... Right. You know, the camera, your phone slides around a little bit in the in the box. <laughs> um, right. So you're, you're pulled out of that world that you're trying to stay in more more readily, more easier, more easy. So it's about a six or a seven. But then that full nine, ten, that's when you're completely surrounded and lost in the world you're in. And I'd say, you know, you want to go to 11 versus 10 is, you know, if you're in a space like Carnegie Arena where you're stepping on sand, you're, you're barefoot, and you've got heat blowing in as you're experiencing what it's like to be a migrant crossing the U.S. border from Mexico, that pushes a little bit further. Um, and I'm getting there because this reminds me of, you know, the type of person I am. I like to know how things work. I like to break them. I like to see behind the curtain. Um, for good or bad, I'm always curious as to how things work. And being in an experience that is fully immersive, I'm always trying to figure out how it works and have one foot squarely in the real world. And I know not everyone does that, but with Carney Arena, there was a moment near the end of that experience, I'm not gonna spoil what it is, where I acted as if I was actually there. And I had to catch myself on the way out of like, oh, I lost myself in this. Wow. And that doesn't happen very often because I've been playing with immersive now for you know, seven, eight years it, I think I know it pretty well, and I can keep myself kind of at that almost observational level, even when I'm experiencing things. That's one of the few experiences where I was not able to do that. So it's that amount of being surrounded. Um, but so back to access. <laughs> no, but that's um, powerful. I mean, that's that's the whole idea. You get someone that immersed, and it changes the nature of their interaction with it. But you have to have the right device to do it. And part of that is, and that's why I, I think my focus and Meridian Treehouse's focus and what we're doing with, with uh, Meta as a partner is informal education. And that is on purpose. And that is because the ability to reach and connect with people in an informal learning space vastly opens up who you can connect with compared to being in a classroom. Um, and it also frees you a little bit from the confines of formal educational standards um, if you're going to a museum or in a you know informal learning space, you don't have to as much check off these standards. Okay, we learned this A B C thing. We learned this one two three thing. It's more about at least what we're creating and hoping to create is focusing on that spark, that catalyst that fosters you know curiosity itself, that makes you want to learn, that makes you think you can learn, and that's where immersive is really powerful. Um, and that to me is where there's the opportunity to connect with more people to get past the biggest barrier, which is access. Because chances are, this is what we were thinking with the theater, and this is to bring that all back. That theater probably, in all, with all its content, cost anywhere between half a million to a million dollars through its run before COVID. But if you were in the DC area and you bought a ticket, it was 30 bucks. 
and you got to harness all of that potential for $30. And it worked when you walked in, you had an amazing experience, and you left full of wonder and excitement, and curiosity, we hope, <laughs> judging by some of the smiles and the questions we got asked, I think I we think did okay. Probably. <laughs> but that was for me the potential to help bridge whatever that gap was gonna be. Now, of course, it means you still have, an or have to have an organization that will believe in funding something like that. You know, people who can pay $30 to come down to downtown D.C. and do things. Right. But it's opening it up. And I think in the immediate future, it's going to rely on that. And one thing that's been, I've been very optimistic with Meta um, for all of its foibles, failures, whatever you want to call it. The team I'm working with in the immersive learning group and the head of immersive learning in particular, Monica Aries wants to support this and make it accessible because they see the potential that we're just talking about right now. So loaner programs, donation programs of headsets and hardware, making this accessible, creating opportunities for creators to make things that will bring us to this next step. That's what they're focused on right now. And that's why I'm excited to be a strategic partner, not only through Meridian Treehouse, but with the Hydras as a nonprofit part of our partnership and the Black Dot Films as a content creator and partner, the three of us together are, you know, made a lot of the things that went into that VR theater, continue to expand what it does, but are really fortunate to be able to work with a team within Meta that sees the potential and wants to help people get there and help creators get there and make an ecosystem that can be sustainable. Um, and that's our goal right now is to, right, we've done these first few things, what do we do next? to keep that ecosystem growing and hopefully become accessible and flourish outside of a walled garden that is meta. Yeah, and, and I think people probably have heard of meta at this point, which is obviously the rebrand of the company that was called Facebook. And, and you've, you've touched on this, but can you sort of describe the nature of your partnership with them? Yeah, of course. So um, I know that happened to, to further explain the meta thing in Facebook. Um, does anyone remember when Google became Alphabet? It's kind of the same thing in that right. it's still Facebook, but it's not. And I would say it's actually been a great thing for the metaverse in that there is this now parent company, Meta, that is over Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, its other properties. I can't remember off the top of my head. There's like there's little logos, but basically how a lot of us communicate in the world today. Um, and that, that overarching company is, of course, anchored heavily in Facebook and social media, but also completely separate. And I think that's the potential with meta immersive learning is that it's that parent company, not Facebook, not WhatsApp, not Instagram. It's something different and above it. It used to be, what used to be Oculus is now the reality labs. So that's the hardware manufacturer. Um, that, that has helped me understand better where, who our partner is. So thinking of it that way helps me better understand it. And that this partnership with them is a strategic partnership. We, at Meridian Treehouse and with our partners, the Hydras and Black Dot Films, have decades, which is crazy, decades of experience working in immersive and immersive learning in a way that um, is unparalleled. And being able to work with the organization, an organization that is really pushing the boundaries of what the metaverse can be, what immersive can be for good and bad, the Oculus headsets, which are now the MetaQuests. Um, they pushed immersive f into a, into a space where it became it became a consumer product and consumer mm -hmm. market. Granted, not one that's saturated as deep as some others, but I th there was a huge shift that came from those headset and those devices being available 
than anything that came beforehand. Before it was wired, it was extreme gamers. Like oh, yeah. you, you couldn't yep. have it, you know, not plugged into something. You couldn't walk into your home and create a guardian area where you could play with games and not worry about kicking your dog. Well, kicking a table, <laughs> kick your dog. They they get curious. Right. They move. I'll say that from firsthand example. Sometimes I have to remember he's underfoot. Um, but that's been the interesting thing with Meta, and that our partnership is in many ways to work with them to help create, bring our ideas to life, work with them to tap into their expertise. Because as much as we've had decades of experience through our combined efforts in VR and immersive, there are members of that team that have been doing it longer. And there's a lot of people there who understand the potential and want to facilitate that with its partners. So as a strategic partner, you know we've been able to fund independent fourth party research um, that has you know, produce this immersive learning guide that is not, um, that is, it's, un, it's independent. And we've also been able to create content and make that available to more people because it was funded by Meta. So Meta in many ways is freeing strategic partners and other partners from the limitations of funding and giving us the ability to experiment and try things. And ultimately in the end, we own what we create and that is hugely important because if there's ever going to be a viable, sustainable ecosystem of creators for learning or immersive in general, unfortunately, we live in a capitalistic society, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, it needs to make money and you know be able to sustain itself. And if Meadow was just funding projects that then kept and was then responsible for making sure populated this ecosystem, it would not be successful. So that, that $150 million learning fund really is helping creators make things that will hopefully become what happens next. So for us, it's allowed us to not only create you know, content, learning experiences, but to do research and continue to do research to see if we're actually making something more than a gimmick. So that's our relationship. It's that you know we work with them to help create ideas and fund ideas that will hopefully make all of this better, more accessible, and maybe in the end, create the perfect learning system for us all to engage with immersive technology. So it becomes that next in indispensable tool for teaching. Like with any partner, there's challenging moments. Sometimes you don't always agree. But I think ultimately in the end, at least in the immersive learning group, there's a shared purpose to that promise. And that purpose is to help people learn and connect with the world around them and each other. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and we won't go into like a philosophical, historical <laughs> conversation, but we there could. was, I mean, there's a <laughs> long history of wealthy patrons paying yeah. the brilliant artists to do the work. And, and yeah. so it, it seems not that far off from, especially given that Meta, even more so, I guess, given that Meta doesn't own the content, right. they're partnering with you and providing the funding and then it's your content so they're benefiting from that connection as opposed to the ownership of the license so yeah just seems and like a great connection when you put it that way yeah and it's it is and that's a, that that is the connection point and it is very much in that traditional american way of philanthropy right. um i guess you could also say the patrons of the arts goes back even further we've got the medicis again the right the philosophical conversation we could have but that's what made it super that's what made it so different um and that's what I think has made it um, not attractive, but that's not the right word, has made Meridian Treehouse and our partners 
want to work more with meta immersive learning is that sure. there isn't that one to own the IP and it potentially allows us to work with partners who are traditionally scared, not scared of, but uh, have had the really bad side of that type of, of philanthropy where people do own things, you know, whether it be indigenous communities, uh, underserved communities who are used to having their stories taken, hidden. Um, this is a really powerful empowerment opportunity to create with them uh, and help them share their stories. So a big part of why I like this part, the partnership too is that we're able to share that knowledge. That learning in the metaverse guide is not behind a firewall. It's not peer reviewed. It definitely is reviewed by a lot of peers. We have 35 plus people review it. That reference page I think is two or three pages. It is reviewed <laughs> and held to a very rigorous standard, but it's not, you know, it's not coming from a journal that where you we were we had to pay to be part of it and you have to pay to read it. This is meant to be accessible for everyone. And that wouldn't have been possible without Meta's support. And we are thankful for that. We were clear and honest about that and upfront that if that funding hadn't been there, that team that dedicated seven months to making this happen, I don't know if we'd all be able to do it because it would have been something we had done in spare time. You know, we wouldn't have been able to really focus in and have people be engaged in the way they were if we didn't have funding to make it happen and make it accessible. So I, I take a look at that as the prime example of how this is a great partnership um, in that they are letting us, they're allowing us to utilize that funding and, and if we need to, their expertise to create things that we ultimately own that are accessible um, and can help shift, you know, the, the potential for what the metaverse can do. Um, I say this often, and this can be probably used in any context. Every new technology is going to be used. It's, it, it, when it when you re reaches that point where it's coming, so you think about internet, you think about radio, TV, all of it. Those new those new technologies were coming, and they were going to be used. And there's going to be people who use it for good and bad. I sure as hell want to be on the side tipping it towards good, and this is what I get to do. Um, and it's it's incredible to know that this team that we have here is helping do that. Um, we're going to get it right every time. No. <laughs> um, are we going to continually work to get it right? Yes. Um, and that's where I, I'd like to know that there's this cohort of do-getters, for lack of a better term, education enthusiasts, learning enthusiasts, people who care about the world and the people around us who want to make the most of this technology because it's coming. Yeah. So, okay, so let's talk about what's coming. <laughs> um, you, you've built some amazing projects. Um, can you can you share some of the things that you've built? Maybe some, if you can share this, something that you're working on and just how these have created great learning experiences. And then if you have the ability, are the, can you share any research or some way of measuring the difference like that A-B test that you talked about? So, um, you know, we've been able to create both the, the, that location-based experience that was the VR theater at National Geographic and you know the goal eventually was to utilize those to um, add resources to create a learning platform which um, we haven't been able to do yet at meridian treehouse but definitely haven't given up on so there's mm -hmm. there's your hint to what hopefully is coming next is that um, making a one-stop easy to use um, place where you can find immersive resources um, traditional media resources and learning materials to go along with it 
And if we get it right, make it make it so that that same place is also an easy way to share it um, with others in a learning environment. So that's that's the big goal, hopefully, to get to that point. Um, but in the past, the, the the experiences that we've created have always focused on the social aspect of VR and immersive, which I know may sound oxymoronic in many ways. That that headset feels so isolating. Um, but it also can be hugely connecting as we've talked about. So that's where we focus on. And one of the experiences I think that still will always, excuse me, stand out with me is being at the X Games in um, Aspen, Colorado, which mind you, you know, I'm, I'm here trying to tell nonfiction storytelling focused on climate change. The X Games may not be the first place you think of as where I'm going to want to go <laughs> to try and connect with people. Um, but it actually was really amazing because you have this captive audience of extreme winter sport enthusiasts. So they love snow. They love mountains. They love being outdoors. It's something they care about that adds value to their life. And I show up with 60 headsets and a team to take them to Mount Everest where there's a VR experience where you get to be one of the scientists doing core samples at the Everest or installing the world's highest weather station and you get to realize that, oh, this is all potentially at risk because of climate change. And that's how you connect with people. So when we talk about telling stories and, you know, altering it for tailoring it for different platforms, this is one way. The intention of going to X Games was to connect with people who don't realize they care about something and show them why they should. And that's the potential of XR is that, is that you know, there were 5,500 people in four days who got to go to Mount Everest while they were standing on the side of a mountain in Aspen, Colorado. Um, and it was amazing to watch people just lose their minds. Sorry, there's no other way to explain it. Like some of the pictures I have from that day where, you know, you're, you're with friends and you're already in your snow gear and it's cold outside. So you've already got the fourth dimension taken care of. Not only is this, right. you, know, you know, VR, it's, four, it's 4D. Um, and you're standing there and just to hear people scream, oh my God, look like, look around, look what's happening. And then ask questions of the people who were there because we had some of the climbers and scientists with us. So they then got to experience it and then ask questions. And it became, as, we, you know, as we've been talking about, that, that back and forth. It's not just us telling you about something. It's pulling you into something and having you be part of it. So you feel you have a stake in it. You've been there. You ask questions. So those experiences have been, you know, the really amazing ones. And there's no A-B testing there, but it's just that reactionary, um, you know, being in, the, in the, the moment and seeing people's reaction. And since we talked last, I had a very uh, fortunate opportunity to chat with some of the, the, um, the amazing, talented, smart scientists behind the Brookings Institute's recent publication on the metaverse. And you know, two, two of the authors are young learning specialists. So they are coming at it from actually having you know, extensive backgrounds in you know, how people learn, how young people learn, whereas we're coming at it, Meridian Treehouse, less of that perspective, and we're storytellers. We had to connect and engage and make an experience that people stick with and want to come back and do, and that you know, gets them curious. Talking with them, there were a lot of points we all came to realize that we were both doing and we're both in line with learning. We were just coming at it from Reading Treehouse's point as storytellers, but right in line with the science that backs it up. So um, I've, you know, the more I think about it, I, I have a Bachelor of Art from American University. 
but my time storytelling, 15 plus years at National Geographic and other places, got a practical PhD <laughs> in how yeah. to connect, communicate. And that, that, that discussion reiterated that. So, you know, not only are we, you know, we have the great partnership with the Hydras who brings in science and learn in learning scientists from, you know, virtual human interaction lab at Stanford with uh, Erica Woolsey and many others and, you know, Harvard graduate school of education, um, you know, being part of, you know, the, our members, you know, being students there, but also being professors in other places. There's a lot of that connection, but it's also reassuring to hear from an outside perspective. Oh, yeah, that's that makes sense. That tracks with our years, decades of extensive research into uh, how people learn. So that's a, a very honest answer on how we, you know, know that we're not getting it completely wrong. <laughs> we are doing the work beforehand to make sure that we're not just creating things again for the sake of creating something cool, but it's also reassuring to talk with people outside of your direct um, expertise and get feedback from them. That's the point of a peer-reviewed document as well, um, but in a more intimate way. And I think immersive currently is at that space in its infancy where people are still collaborative. There's not quite that territorial takeover that happens as a technology or where it becomes more of a competition for, you know, supremacy on like a technology or platform or things like that. It's still at that point where there's a lot of people who are very excited and very creative trying to figure out what it can do. And so it's still very collaborative. It's kind of at that point where what lifts up for some immersive lifts everyone up and that'll change. But for right now, it's still in that space. So that wasn't quite the most direct answer to your question. I'm happy to give you a little bit more of a direct one if you if that would help. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it what what you said makes sense. I mean, there's anything that is new is going to be untested at some point, and it it feels at least to me like the best thing you can do in that case is align it with at least you know research that's similar or findings like that. We in learning science like there's mostly theories there's no laws of learning science <laughs> at least none that i'm aware of and so what you do is you you try to base what you are you know what you're doing with your students or in your classroom or whatever you base that in hopefully in the research uh, that came before so that even if the stuff that you're doing specifically is not you know proven or proven as much as it can be it, it at least is going to be held up by what what came before and, and it sounds like that's what you've been doing which is great yeah and part of that too for 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 me is that one of the best aspects of my career has been i am rarely the smartest person in the room whether it be virtual or real and i've loved every minute of it i'm mm. constantly learning i'm constantly being surprised taking on new adventures i'd never know existed and that's what this continues to be. So for me, that's my philosophy, always has been. And when we started Meridian Treehouse, it was originally a collective. A collaborative is what it then grew to. And now I think we're calling ourselves an agency because we've grown up a bit, so it feels more professional. But in the end, <laughs> it's still collaborative. I don't yeah. know everything. My team doesn't know everything. We have to work with other people to find answers and solutions, or they're not going to be as good as what we, you know, just you need that involvement. And I've always been that way. And I like to create a culture. I hope I'm creating it with my team. That is the same way. You will get bit sometimes. But I think in the end, it's ultimately a better, better for everyone to at least greet the problems that way. And then re be reactionary if you have to pull back. But 
And we started with that. Okay, this is a collaborative. Let's make it work. Let's figure out what we can do. How does this help everyone? What raises all ship? Well, you know, rising tides raise all ships is always been my philosophy, always will be. Even if every now and then my boat might get a hole in it and rise a little slower, or I've lost a few that have sunk, but still, <laughs> um, that extended that metaphor as long as it'll go. But that's <laughs> yeah, kind I appreciated that. But that's our that's our philosophy. So it's also great to know that you know there's a lot of theories um, in learning science, and that to me seems like a great place to be because you won't you don't know all the answers, and it's fun trying to figure out how you might get them. Yeah, no, I, I love how you put that. Yeah. All right. So final question here. You've got this long history of doing all these different types of media, um, but but all sort of around the idea of storytelling. And so what if you think forward, what's an idea on your bucket list that you've for whatever reason you've not been able to build yet, whether it's a technology or whether it's, uh, you know, just you haven't had time to do it or or whatever that is. Like, what's your avatar part two? You know, if we think about the, the avatar universe and how they basically couldn't create the next one until the technology evolved enough, what, what is your, uh, what's your bucket list thing? Um, hmm. My bucket list, as weird as it is, is it's so funny too because I have some random insight knowledge on Avatar, so I just love that that's still the thing. Like we have to pause <laughs> until the to the until the technology's right. Um, yeah. I think it's it's going to be a place where the technology is ubiquitous as the glasses we're both wearing right now, and I think that's where there's a special moment. Something I'd want to be involved in um, is that you know sitting right now I'm overlooking Washington D.C. There's a story in history to everything that's out my window right now, and I want to know it. But I think there'll be a time where these devices will be so ingrained to what we are, who we are, that we'll be able to do that. I will be able to look at that tree outside and know what it means. What what's the species? How long has it been there based on its size, or you know what it looked like before it was put there? Those type of things. I want to be involved in that. <laughs> um, and I know that it sounds so wild, so futuristic, but at the start of the pandemic, I was plotting, I submitted a grant to NEH to basically kind of do that with a museum exhibition in the park where the photos that would be put up would be AR triggers and you'd learn about the photo, but also it's context to where you are. So there's, it, it's getting there and I can't wait for the technology to catch up. I also cannot wait for that to be accessible to as many people as possible because that's the big thing, you know, right now, you know, as we're looming halfway through 2022, getting knowledge out and getting information out, accurate information is going to be the only way that we as a collective planet save ourselves. Mm. Um, and that needs to happen. And so I guess for me, the one thing I haven't done yet and want to do is continue to push the power of immersive towards that end of the spectrum. And I'm going to keep pushing. It's Part of the reason I'm here is that there is good to be done with it, and I'd like to help do that. And so it sounds a little woo-woo, for lack of a better term, and, um, but technology is only as good as the people who are making it and the intention of those yeah. behind it. And if there's not people doing that, then we're screwed. So I'd like to continue doing that, having fun with it, make it exciting and enjoyable, and if along the way I get to, you know, 
watch, a, you know, get a few people very excited about filmmaking or storytelling or protecting an ocean, I'm doing all right. Um, but my big goal would be to have a point where the, the technology is ubiquitous and just having everyone experience the full potential of the world around them and that ability to just spark your creativity. And that's going to happen when people have complete comfortability with the technology. It's integrated into more things than it already is. And, you know, you can just be surrounded by it. Yeah. I don't know how to get there yet. <laughs> I don't think we, any of us do. Um, but I'm game to help get there. That's why it's a bucket list item. <laughs> exactly. No, and, and I know that's a big a bit of a broad, wild bucket list um, item, but it really is to have that be completely accessible. And on a very personal note to, to end this out, what I hopefully hope that is is that, you know, there's people who can't travel and do the things they want to do, and hopefully there's a point where that doesn't matter, um, whatever the reason. So as you can see, it's kind of personal. It's hitting me. Wow. Sorry. Um, yeah, because that sense of wonder, I've let it. I've been very fortunate. I've been around the world for work. I've got to experience a lot of things many people don't, and I'm very fortunate. And I want to be able to make it so other people can do that, even if there's times when those who could do it can no longer do it. And thinking about that becomes hugely important as well. So my bucket list again is making it accessible. There's so much wonder out there. How do you connect with it? How do you get people to engage with it, respect it, love it, take care of it? Um, and the, the metaverse can often be seen as a way to escape. And for me, I really want it to be a way to connect with what's here, what's real, um, which I know oftentimes is hard. Um, and yeah. So now that I've pulled myself back together again, it's always that moment where you can see yourself in the camera and you're thinking about crying and then it just gets worse. You try to avoid <laughs> looking at yourself and you look like an idiot. And then you, yeah, so that's what was happening there. Um, and, and but I, but you I said that, it so, so well, like the, the, just the good that, you know, back to what you were saying, being able to do the good with this technology, uh, that's what it means is opening those connections to people and opening the accessibility to people and, I, I don't know what the story is behind the allowing people to travel, but clearly that's so meaningful to you and is driving a lot of what you're doing to create these experiences where you bring the real, or at least as close as you can get to the real experience to the person as opposed to the other way around, which is how it's always been. It's a big part of it for me. And I'm actually not usually shy about it. And I'm not shy about it now about what it is, is that, you know, my career, I've been fortunate. I have traveled to the Serengeti, I've been, you know, I've been in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, I've been all across the United States and a bunch of other places. And it's a very physical, demanding job. And it's wonderful. And I love, love doing it. But unfortunately, at 34, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's a very real knowledge that I will not be able to do that as long as I thought I could. And it's also put in, you know, stark directly in front of my face my limitations and limitations that others already had or had in different ways. And so I was lucky. I was physically healthy, emotionally healthy and stable, financially healthy and stable to have a job or the ability to go to these places and connect with the world in that manner. Not everyone gets that for, for numerous reasons, but it's become very apparent to me very quickly that my time that I thought I'd be able to do that changes, has changed. There's a little more of an impetus on that. So for mm -hmm. me, it's how do you keep the world, how do you stay connected to the world 
no matter what, and especially if you have a disease that in many ways will start pulling you back from it. Wow. So that's powerful. Yeah. Well, Wes, listen, thank you so much for taking the time for this, for opening up like this, um, really sharing just, you know, what's in your head about why you're doing this stuff. Cause it's, I, I think what you said is, is a really good point that a lot of people look at the metaverse as an escape and, and it's sort of written off as that, right? Oh, they're just going to be in virtual reality because they can't deal with the real world. But if you can shift that and, and make that about the connection and about the experience, and we didn't even get into empathy here so much, but, right. but it's uh, implied by a lot of what you've said that changing that is very much part of the metaverse and, and what it at least what its promise is and so if we can make it so that it's not just for video games but it's right. really for those learning experiences and, and and just experiences that just feels like such an incredible uh incredible quest to be on and, and so thank you for for doing that from all of us out here who are going to benefit well, it's not just me and that's one thing i always want to stress too it's you know there's an amazing collaborative team working with me, um, people who are inspiring me, who know more than me, know different things than me. Um, and I'm constantly in awe of how dedicated they are to making this really powerful tool live up to its potential yeah. um, in a way that we can all you know, benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. Now that we definitely don't want to skimp on the credit here. There's a lot of people involved, but uh, but I, I just love the vision that you've got for this. And what I'll do is, I'll for people who are listening, I'll stick as many of these links in to uh, things that Wes and his team have have worked on. And so those will be in the episode notes if you're interested in continuing to learn. Something that I did after I talked to Wes for the first time was to get the dive experience on the Oculus that I actually bought after that first episode that I mentioned that was on immersive learning. And so I downloaded that and tried it out, and it is really cool. So I'm going to put as many of these links in here as uh, as Wes is able to share. And, and so hopefully people will be able to really experience, uh, hopefully they have the access to do it, but they'll be able to really experience what you're talking about. And it's, hopefully that, that becomes the case. I know with a lot of the material from the Hydrus itself, it's available on YouTube or other mm -hmm. platforms, free and accessible. Um, one of the projects I didn't really touch on, but is definitely one of those moments of like, how did I get here? Wait, I'm actually getting to do this. Was the uh, exhibit at the Smithsonian Arts and Industries building, the Moonwalk exhibit, where we worked with um, archive images and archive audio to create a lunar landing experience that spanned the Apollo missions, all of them, 11 through 17. And it's using photos the astronauts themselves took. So you got to travel back in time and stand where Neil Armstrong literally was and see through his eyes of his photos and their audios, they discovered the moon, you know, the playful, fun, exuberant men behind those stoic images. And that was super exciting to see people's reactions to actually hearing them and realizing, oh, they're just like us. They get excited about things. And on the way out, one last story that still is so, so absolutely surreal. On that opening night, I put two people in headset. I got to take two people to the moon that night when the exhibit opened. The first was Dr. Mae Jemison, because she was our narrator, so she was our, our guide through the story and experience. She had never been to the moon that way. And the second wow. person was my mom, and it was her first VR experience. So oh, wow. 
kind of screwed myself for whatever comes next for her. But <laughs> <laughs> there was a really powerful moment where I just sat back and was like, oh, wow, I helped Mae Jemison go to the moon for the first time and my mom. So, so cool. kind of amazing when you have those moments and it's a bit of a side tangent, but everyone out there who's like working so freaking hard in education, technology, whatever it is, take those moments and remember to enjoy them. Hmm. Because like I was telling you earlier, sometimes they become a little fleeting and you don't realize, you don't realize how short the time is to have them. So when you get them, enjoy them, sit back for a little while, not too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, and reflect and remember how you got there because what started is me running a crappy little TV morning announcements in my high school turned into taking Dr. Mae Jemison to the moon yeah. 100 feet from where the first moon rock was displayed in Washington, D.C. And I never thought I'd be there, but man, I don't want to be anywhere else. Oh, wow. Yeah, you mentioned when we were talking the first time we met, you you mentioned that project, and this was more detail, I think, than you gave me there. And it's brought back the feeling of regret that I have for not having been able to experience that because that was when I was growing up as a little kid, that was the thing. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to walk on the moon. I wanted you know to explore space and to be able to have that experience the way that you described it, what you gave to your mom. That's really incredible. Well, I wish I could have seen don't, that. Don't beat yourself up too much. Spoiler, maybe a hint, teaser. There may be more opportunities coming our way soon. Well, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, Wes, this was this was wonderful. Thank you so much Thank for taking you. the time, and and I've really enjoyed hearing just more of your stories and and just getting more into your head. I think it's uh, like I said, it's just it's amazing what you're trying to do here, and it's I, I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun to chat with you and just kind of explore this a little differently than I normally do. So thank you for that perspective, that insight, and just to, to prompt me to think a little different. So thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay, folks. So that's all for now. Thanks for learning with us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And I hope you'll also recommend it to your friends. Thank you.